Now, welcome to the Wellbeing and Career World podcast. I'm delighted to be chatting with self-proclaimed product of the Midwest, who gets nostalgic about cornfields. Iggy started in the field of experimental human development at the dawn of the 21st century, which basically meant that she spent a lot of time outside and treating fit graders to jump out of trees while hooked to ropes or scaring the, the crap out of them by hiking and scaring the crap out of by hiking in the woods at night under the guise of environmental education. Along the way, Iggy earned a master's degree in experiential education and a cheating license in English language arts and did a ton of training on topics like conflict resolution, restorative justice and mental health first aid mixed with technical wilderness travel and safety skill. We will chat a bit more about this later. Very more welcome to our podcast guest today is Iggy Perillo. A very good morning to where you are, Iggy. How are you getting on? I'm doing great. It's so great to be here with you, David. Wonderful. Let's start this off. So where are you on planet Earth and what's the weather like? I am in Portland, Oregon, on the west coast of the United States right now, and it is sunny and beautiful, which is not the uh, sort of local, you know, a highlight of Oregon weather. It is the local highlight of Oregon weather, but we're known to be cloudy and rainy, but it's beautiful, sunny, warm day today. Wonderful. So the Perillo part of your name or the surname, that's Italian, mm -hmm. isn't it? Yes, it is. I uh, have family. The Perillos are from Soma Vesuviana in Italy, and I sort of met the distant relatives when I was there once. And it is wild because uh, you walk down the street and there's like Perillo furniture, Perillo fruit, Perillo, like <laughs> these people I have no idea, I've never met. I'll share my last name in this little tiny town on the side of Mount Vesuvius. Well, very, very nice. And you, you've, you've no plans to go soon, obviously when the, when the COVID finishes or the, the, the lockdown or pandemic finish, but have you any plans to travel to have a, oh. have a little look? I would love to go anywhere, everywhere. Yeah, I would love to head back to Italy. I'd love to go get to New Zealand. I've never been. I've, yeah, visions of a lot of travel, but the reality is it's not going to happen in the extremely near future. So I want to add on then because the intro mentioned technical wilderness travel. What's that? I have spent a lot of years taking people on wilderness expeditions and so I worked in northern Minnesota in the U.S. along the Canadian border. So in the summertime, I did many, many summers of canoe and backpacking expeditions. In the winter, I did dog sled and skiing expeditions. So I took strangers, folks out. I worked for the Outward Bound School there. would take groups of strangers out on the snow and ice in the winter with dog sleds, and we'd travel for a week at a time. And in the summer, similar, but not ice, on the lakes and on the, in the woods on canoeing and backpacking. So that's sort of the technical aspect of my wilderness travel. What's that like the uh, with the dogs? I mean, are they how do they cope? Are they? Are they, are they... <laughs> yeah, they cope really well. They cope okay. sometimes better than the humans. Right. Uh, they it is it's like nothing else I can describe. You know, so many things have a metaphor, but traveling by dog team by dog team over the snow and ice is such a unique experience, and we. I, some folks have seen maybe the Iditarod or dog sled races where you have um, 10 dogs and a tiny little sled. You're just sprinting through the woods. It is not 0% like that because we would have, those are the sort of the Ferraris of the dog world that race. And we have the semi trucks of the dog world. So they're these furry, big, tough dogs uh, carrying sleds with maybe six or 800 pounds of gear. Uh, we take a canvas wall tent. We would take, you know, food, a lot of stuff for our expedition along with us and be out there on the ice. So there'd be a couple dog sled teams with maybe six dogs, maybe five or six at the, you know, on average. 
and folks would be skiing with either a backpack or a pulk, which is like a little sled kind of uh, attached to their waist. And we'd be out there on the ice for a week and on the snow. And it's not like the Iditarod because there are trails between the lakes. So the lakes are flat and smooth and you're cruising along and it's beautiful. But then you hit a trail between the lakes, which inherently involves some up and some down. And so it can get kind of tricky to get your sled woven through the woods and safely back to the next lake so you can travel onward. And then you're checking the ice. Then you're doing all these other things. We sleep on the ice at night. It's just a wild time. But the dogs have a great time. They're super burly. The people, uh, I think, aspire to be as comfortable as the dogs are out there sometimes. And and what type of dogs are they? Huskies or...? Yeah, yeah, Huskies. I think the sort of traditional model of dog from the school that I worked at were the Alaskan, which just meant a tradition, back in the day, you needed to have seven dogs to stake a claim in Alaska during the gold rush because so many people were not faring well out there and the dogs were tough and could get people around through the snow, through the ice. And so people essentially bred any dogs they could that were furry and tough that could survive the Alaskan winter. So this is the Alaskan, it's not a sort of officially recognized breed, but they are huskies is what you would probably call them furry, but they look all different things. We have had some with floppy ears that look like a beagle a little bit, some with that sort of traditional furry coat, some with really long coats that you just think they look like Angora, like who knows what they are. And <laughs> But they are uh, a, mix, uh, a mixed breed, I would say, bred for durability, warmth, you know, and for us, we bred them to be really positive, really happy, really patient with sort of the stop and go of travel because, we, you know, as you're getting your sled through the woods, you have to stop and go often and dogs require a lot of patience to stop and go. Sometimes they would prefer to just go if you're a pet owner, that pet on the leash sometimes just wants to go. So we need them to be very calm with stop and go too. And on the ice, I mean, you said you sleep on the ice or you... Yes. How thick is the ice and how comfortable do you feel sleeping on the ice? <laughs> uh, <laughs> You check the ice, I would say, and it's ranges. I think we, uh, I'm trying to think of like the thinnest ice I've ever slept on just to like give some perspective. Yeah. Not, I would say six inches or so is maybe the thinnest ice I've slept on, which is, and you can travel on much thinner ice because you're in motion and moving. And, uh, but, and in thickness, uh, so typically we would set up camp, we would go and, um, find a spot that's protected from the wind if you know if there's wind blowing on the lake and if you're really savvy protected from the wind but also is going to get the sun to come up and shine in on your camp in the morning to like you know warm things up a little bit so you find the optimal little bay or cranny in the lake uh and then we'd set up sort of camp the people folks are sleeping on the ground you know on the ice and uh, on a sleeping pad and you know you have sleeping bags everything's really puffy with a little tarp over you but you want a lot of airflow if you were in a tent your breath will crystallize on the side of the tent the moisture from your breath crystallize on the tent falls back down on you and you get wet so it's just a tarp with open sides low to the ground because you're right underneath there and we would cut a hole in the ice to get water out because it's a lot more efficient to warm up water than to melt snow or ice into water and then heat it up it's just water is warmer than ice and snow. So I remember chopping through the ice sometimes with this tool, like you go away from camp and make your ice hole in the ice uh, to get water out of, and maybe going through at least 12 inches of ice pretty easily often, maybe 18 sometimes, like you're chopping for a while. It's on a very cold winter, very, you know, smooth, depending on how the ice has formed that winter. It could be, yeah, almost 18 inches thick at times. Wow. Usually closer to 12 though. Exciting stuff. I mean, yeah, wow, fun. okay, that's right. That's a lot of fun. I mean, we chatted pretty much about your adventures there. So, can you tell us a little bit more about your background? 
my background. Uh, I spent a lot of time out in the snow and the ice and in, <laughs> on wilderness travel. I think the part that brought me to the things we're going to talk about a little bit to that, my family did a lot of car camping when I was growing up. So we would, anytime there was a break from school, we'd all pile in. I've two brothers and my parents and I would all hop in the car and go to a state park or a national park or just drive somewhere and do some car camping visits, that kind of thing. Then I started working for Our Bound. I spent a lot of time in the wilderness where I added this idea of working with under, other people and strangers and using the wilderness as a tool for education. And from that have sort of evolved into the my current self, my current iteration of myself, <laughs> uh, which is really focused on leadership training and leadership skills for folks and helping people be the best leaders they can be either in their work or their sport or just in their life. So I work with folks in corporate settings, athletes, as well as individuals who just want to lead themselves and their lives better. Wow. Okay. So before we get on to the main topic today of conflict resolution, mm -hmm. can you let me know or let the listeners know, what is a experiential, uh, pronounce it correctly, education master? Uh, yeah, I have a master's degree in experiential education. There we go. So, <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's tricky and and frequently called experimental education, which yeah. is not <laughs> not quite right, but it kind of makes it sound a little spicier. Right. Uh, experiential education is the the practice of learning from experience. So we're all constantly having experiences all the time, and some of us, I'm sure, have encountered the situation where you feel like you're repeating the same experience over and over because you haven't learned from it. It's just going to happen again. So experiential education, master's degree, we got into how we take experience and go from that to learning and transfer that learning to the next experience we have. So it's sort of this educational process that involves experience, reflection, and transference. And how to do that is how you, you learn from experience. And even though we're constantly having experiences, we don't constantly learn from our experiences. So it's making that experience meaningful. And we have a lot of experiences that we don't need to learn anything from. Like I don't really need to put a lot of effort into learning something from brushing my teeth at night like i just that's an experience i have it's fine it's great but when i'm on an expedition or when i'm engaged in a webinar or any sort of learning environment i want that experience to be as meaningful as high impact and as useful as possible and that's experiential education that's amazing i mean when you're in high school is this what is was this a goal of yours to do this master's degree uh no. no, I bet when I was in high school, I wanted to be a professional camp counselor. So a right. little bit of that has happened, but uh, <laughs> I think uh, the master's degree just added more perspective and depth. And that's when I did my master's degree is also when I got my teaching license, which was very different. It was sort of a very traditional teaching license, which you mentioned at the intro. Yes. And that was a, just a different experience in the, uh, the program I went through in the US. I did those simultaneously. And so I'd go to one class and they'd be talking about methods of education and how to deliver a great educational session. And then I go to another class and it would be all about how to create the perfect experience to draw learning from. So just very different mindsets around what education is and how it works, but not maybe, it's something I discovered, I think, as I cruised along through my life, how to how those went together. I guess I always kind of liked school and liked learning, but I don't know that I saw myself doing this specifically as a high schooler. Right. Wow. Okay. Very impressive. Because I thought was, I have to say, like, I that's the first time I've ever heard of this type of master's degree. Um, it's not super common. It's true. Oh, wow. Okay. Pretty, pretty, pretty cool. So, can I? Would you be able to define conflict resolution? Or what is conflict resolution? Hmm. Yes. It seems so simple, yet it's so. <laughs> it brings me pause. I guess I'm like, well, we all just know, right? We have conflicts yeah. and we fix them, but I think. Conflict resolution is the goal 
of when there's disagreement. And I'd say a lot of this sort of disagreement comes from miscommunication and misinterpreted expectations. And so we have conflict where people are at different odds in terms of either their values, their goals, the outcomes they want. And conflict resolution is this great part at the end where we're like, everything's together, we're amazing. The reality is a lot of times we operate in the space of conflict management where we're always negotiating, trying to understand, trying to build connections, trying to get everyone on the same page doing the same thing, trying to understand why things are going wrong, why things aren't, you know, goals aren't being met, why things are off the rails a little bit, why energy is being wasted. So conflict resolution is this beautiful, happy state of everything's awesome. And the reality is we're <laughs> constantly managing conflict and disagreement and yeah expectations and things that are not quite in alignment are we better off then in your opinion to hit conflict straight on to get rid of the problem as soon as possible i mean is, is that why we find ourselves in these conflict situations because we keep i don't know what the term is like in america but it's like kicking the can is where yeah you, yeah you constantly have this issue all the time it'll sort itself out next week is that is that why Yes, 100%. And I think I, I say yes. And there's also the part where people feel intimidated. They're like, oh, things are uncomfortable. I'm a little nervous. Like, I don't know how to deal with this thing. Or this is my boss and I'm the uh, person working for them. So I can't say anything to the boss or uh, it's not my place. Or people sort of tell themselves a lot of stories to kick it down the road, to kick the can down the road a little bit more. Or they they have some fear or they are intimidated. And I would say, Collectively, to me, that all fits under this umbrella of they don't quite have the skills or they're not quite sure what to do. And those are that's just what I hear from people often. They're like, oh, I don't know, or I'm, I feel uncomfortable. And so they put it off and put it off and put it off and it gets worse and worse and worse. And people get stressed. They feel it weighing on them. They feel just avoidant of situations or people or certain things because they haven't dealt with it. I think exactly what you said was right on that point. Should we, Iggy, should we kind of um how do you say uh take it personal if if we're mm -hmm. saying a workplace situation or even mm -hmm. in the environment that you you've you know you're, you're these wonderful uh excursions that you're doing with, with with dogs and you know sleeping on the ice and stuff like that, and somebody kind of has a different a difference of opinion i mean should we take it personal i think we <laughs> I would love to say like, no, never take it personally. But the reality is we always take it personally. <laughs> like the should is great. It'd be this really, I think it's a very, um, I don't know, self-aware, very emotionally intelligent person that can see a conflict brewing that has to do with them. They're personally involved in it, but to not take it personally is asking a lot of people. I think that's, uh, again, this is this beautiful idea, ideal where everything's, you know, water off a duck's back. Everything's amazing. I'm calm in the face of adversity all the time. But the reality is we're not. We're we're people muddling through constantly, tripping over our own selves or other people. So it'd be great to not take it personally. And I think that takes effort to learn sometimes. And I think, and I know that there are folks in professions that do this more naturally or have this experience and are really good at distancing themselves from the conflict or from the situation. I know a lot of folks are in helping professions where that's their job, right? They're they're there to go in and engage with conflict or engage with stressful situations. And so it's easy for them to separate themselves and their personality and their sense of self from the conflict or situation happening. But for many of us, if someone's like, oh, why are you being such a jerk? We're gonna be like, oh, why are you hurting me? <laughs> you know, like we just instantly take it personally. And we're not great communicators about voicing conflict or voicing when things aren't going right. I think that's a whole nother skill, like how to tell someone 
how to give someone good feedback, but also how to voice a complaint in a way that it's heard and meaningful and can be worked on and not taken personally on the front end. So it's sort of both sides of the equation, I think. Have you any examples yourself of you know, possible conflict situations uh, in the workplace or also on a personal level in how you would treat these or handle them? I mean, even for example, have you ever had a situation where you're, you're sleeping on, on the ice and somebody else comes along and says, oh, that, that ice is not thick enough or not? sleeping there tonight i mean <laughs> <laughs> or the dog you know that dog looks a bit angry i mean uh, how do you handle that mm, i think oh, i'm trying to think of a specific example that's always a little more meaty but i think if people one's not coming brilliantly right to my mind but i think folks often they sort of have different ideas of what should be happening right like yeah. we go to get up in the morning. This is where conflict happens. Actually, we go to get up in the morning. And people are like, I don't want to get out of my sleeping bag. And you're like, we need to go. We're out here on this lake in the middle you know, of the woods. Like we can't actually stay in your sleeping bag all day. We'd run out of food. It's not going to go well. We have places we need to be. And so if, for example, we wake up in the morning and someone's like, I just don't want to get up or get going. I think they're, you know, that, that one is not the trickiest because eventually people wake up a little more their brain wakes up a little more and they're like oh yeah i can't stay here forever this is really cozy and warm and you know things are happening around me i need to get going or you start cooking breakfast you lure them out with some you know in my case bacon very alluring gets people really <laughs> right out of bed um but i think the sort of conflict situations that are more subtle require a little more time to get to understand and understand what needs people are trying to meet and I think that is often overlooked when we take things personally, when we jump into a conflict and we're like, oh, everything's terrible. Oh, I can't believe they're saying that. Like, oh, why are they making such poor choices? Why are they doing something that's obviously terrible for everyone involved? I think taking some time to look at the needs that the other person is trying to meet really helps clarify why they're doing what they're doing versus just writing them off as being a jerk, right? You're like, oh, yeah. that jerk, they just hate everyone. Why are they mean to me? You're like, not super useful. That jerk is probably trying to do something to meet one of their needs. So William Glasser would say that everyone is always behaving and they have five basic needs they're trying to meet. Survival is our primary basic need. Love and belonging. So we do things for connection and to interact with others. For freedom, which is choice freedom. Sometimes we just need to be able to make choices. Fun, which is the reward for hard work, but also for enjoyment and self-fulfillment and power is another of the basic needs. So we do things to exercise power and have influence on, on situations, other people, things around us. So everything, if we look at behavior in terms of trying to meet one of those needs, it's sometimes it's a little tricky. One behavior might could be between or meet different needs. If we understand the needs someone is trying to make, the needs someone is trying to meet through their behavior, we can see conflict in a very different way. Conflict is suddenly mismatched between someone's needs and behavior and someone else's needs and behavior. We may have different alignment on needs. We may have different alignment on what behavior meets those needs or is appropriate for the situation or these people. And so then we can look at conflict as, how do I help you meet your needs in a way that serves me, serves our group, serves our purpose together, together collectively? So this breaks conflict from there being a jerk to wait, our needs aren't being met appropriately, necessarily, like in a way that's the best for everyone right now. What can we do to come together and make things better for everyone? What about them uh, cultures? So say, for example, mm -hmm. you're moving abroad and you're, say, say you're coming to Ireland and you're coming here to work and you're mm -hmm. used to a certain culture there, certain beliefs. Um, can that cause a bit of conflict as well? 
Absolutely. Yeah. There, and I'd say a lot of that comes down to unspoken expectations. So much of culture is unspoken or we see sort of pieces of it down the road. And I think sort of this classic example in the, the business world is some places you go and you sit down, you have your cup of coffee, you chat for 20 minutes, and then you start the, the, the agenda of the meeting it happens after that. And other places, the culture is you show up five minutes early and we start the meeting on time. It's all agenda, all business, all day, you know? And yeah. so if you're sort of coming from one of these different views to the other one, you're suddenly like, why are we wasting all this time? Or why do these people hate me? And we just jump into the agenda and they don't want to get to know me and who I am. So that's <laughs> this is sort of like this classic, very simplified culture, difference of culture example. And I think some of that is like the expectations are just different. And you may not have discussed those on the front end. I might just show up and be like, why are we just diving into this meeting? What I didn't ex I didn't expect that. So then there's conflict. I might be resistant, or I might try to be like, "Hey, can we take a coffee break?" And everyone else is like, "No, we're on the agenda." You know, there's suddenly this friction is caused by those unspoken expectations. And moving to a new place is a great way to, or even visiting, <laughs> a great way to see what those expectations are. And there, so many times they're unspoken. So I think there takes this level of humility to come into a new space and be a good learner. And this is where experiential learning, we, I'm glad we can mention my degree like 12 times during this uh, <laughs> podcast today. Like I need to see what the, what is actually happening and what the experience is going on around me and process that pretty quickly in order to meld with the culture. Or maybe I need to ask questions and some cultures questions are better than others. You know, I think there's a million pitfalls you can fall into. But I think this level of humility and trying to be a good learner first really helps people out in those situations where you may not know the culture or the culture is literally just unspoken. If I'm coming into someone else's space or a different culture's meeting even, I don't know the norms. I don't know really what's happening there. I can ask on the front end, but so many things are just like, oh yeah, it's just a normal meeting. I'm like, well, what is a normal meeting for you? Like, I don't even know. Do organizations then, do they have a responsibility to educate um say a new staff member or a new employee who may be traveling from one country to another to kind of let them know what kind of goes on well in ireland we do this in america we do this in italy we do this in spain we do this to give you know the new staff member the heads up so they kind of avoid these situations it's, it's i mean can organizations have share more responsibility with this rather than just pointing the finger at, at us <laughs> right I think they can try. And I think there's this sort of classic um, organizational culture slide decks are out there. You can just Google them and find ones from different companies out there. Like, here's who we want you to be in this organization. Here's how we view different roles within this organization. Here's how we want communication to flow in our organization. And I think those can be tied very much to the organization itself or the nationality where that organization was created. I think there's a lot of reasons this happens. And I think and and you can google the slide decks and you can find them and they're different from place to place and i think there's this every website you go to you can find somewhere the company's values or mission or those types of statements but the reality is often different on the ground i talk a lot with organizations about their aspirational values and their actual day-to-day -day values like what do you actually see within this organization what culture do you actually see you know organizations will say like oh we're really one big family and you're and then someone will be like well my family is really acts like this or my someone else will say like well my family acts kind of like this you know it, like so some of the words don't carry a lot of meaning and i think it's excellent for organizations to attempt to communicate those and i think there's really a lot of space for mentoring within organizations and being really intentional with that 
whole onboarding process, really. Here's how meetings flow. Here's how the, even this sub team within this organization, here's how we work together. Here's how we communicate. Here's how, you know, our expectations around whatever it is that our, our little team is doing and team, different teams within an organization have their own subcultures for sure. And some of that comes out of sort of those inside jokes or shortcuts or, you know, acronyms that they use that are very hyper super specific that show that sense of connection and who's in with this group. They know what the blah, blah, blah means. And someone else is like, I don't even know what that stands for. So they, <laughs> it's sort of done intentionally a little bit and it's great to try to educate people. And I think training people to be good learners serves them far better than training them to adapt or training them to like know what the culture is within this team and that team and this organization and that organization. So I love the more meta skills around how to process, how to learn, how to be observant and approach the environment as a good learner. To reduce, you mentioned before, Iggy, with you know expectations and family, or you're part of like, you know, the, the organization mm -hmm. family. Should we reduce our expectations and realize that we're never actually part of the family and you're just a number <laughs> or is that just too harsh? Well, I don't know. I think family <laughs> just means so many things. That's a great question. Like, is that just bogus to say, yeah, we're a family at this organization. Some families are so uh, not positive and not functional yes. and not, you know, not good situations that I don't know that everyone, you know, whoever says they want the organization to be like a family has a very idealized, very specific view. And I think you'd be better off talking about that, what those specific pieces are than saying the word family often. But I think I've also been with groups that have been together for a while and teams have been functioning together and working together. And they're like, we're a family and here's what this family is like. And here's what this family means. And so they saying it's a family is a shortcut for all these other pieces, but they all know, like they're all in the room talking about what the pieces of being a family is like and what that means for how they operate and communicate and how they function as a group together. So it can be a nice sort of shortcut. And I still think it's, if, you know, the outsider coming in, that means almost nothing to yes. say they're like a family, right? It is interesting because I mean, I've had, colleagues in the past or friends and they've worked for an organization or a company for say 10 or 15 years and then they've been laid off or been terminated and, and they, they they're kind of shocked because they said like I was they told me I was part of the family I'm oh yeah <laughs> you know you're like all right okay <laughs> you know? you've been kicked so, out of the family sorry you've been disowned yeah where's that metaphor right <laughs> yeah bye bye that's what I mean about expectations as well sometimes the best well maybe to lower your expectations a little bit so you don't yeah. get too disappointed. <laughs> Realistic. Um, yeah. Well, who knows? What, what about then with um okay, you're you're you've had a conflict in a workplace environment and you've tried to resolve it with a colleague. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't seem to be solving itself. There's a little bit of tension, a little bit of bitterness. When or how can you approach a manager or a boss? Mm. Or do the managers or boss really want to do they really care? I mean, are you, are you that interested? <laughs> I mean, are yeah. you, oh, God, give me a break. Leave me alone. I have a lot yeah. of things you're worrying about. Like, you know. How, oh, yeah. How, how then could you solve that issue? Right. I've definitely encountered situations where the boss is like, this is not my problem. Go deal with it yourself. <laughs> and, yeah. and those people are like, ah, how do I deal with this thing? Or it's not going well. Or I need help. Oh yeah, it's so tough. And I'd say this is really, again, tied to sort of your organizational, your team culture, like how things really function in there. And if your boss or the manager sees himself as sort of the the scheduler, like, and they're like, you deal with yourself as a people, 
or if your boss sees himself as the person, you know, the the person manager, I guess I don't know the good word for other than the scheduler. I when I work with some teams, uh, I work often with the roller derby people in the roller derby world, and they often have two team captains instead of just one. And often the team captains, one is sort of, I refer to it as Captain Spreadsheets, who's in charge of the scheduling, the this and the that. And then there's Captain Hugs, who's in charge of the people and how they feel <laughs> and what's going on with them and how their emotional state is. So, but not everyone has the opportunity to have Captain Spreadsheets and Captain Hugs together on their team. So I think the, knowing your manager, knowing who your boss is, how they are gonna function, what they want. I think people get lost and left behind sometimes. And this is where they end up sweeping everything under the rug. The boss is like, hey, deal with this yourself. And the person's like, I don't know how to deal with this. Or I've tried and now things are awkward and weird. I feel people often fear that they're damaging a relationship when they try to resolve a conflict because they have to tell someone that what they're doing, they don't like what they're doing, right? If I have to tell you, I don't like your behavior, people take that personally. You don't like me as a person. Now I don't like you as a person. Now everything's awkward, super weird. Everything's tense. We can't even talk to each other, sit in a lunchroom together ever again. And so people have gotten into these weird spirals where suddenly everything's weird, awkward, stressful. They don't necessarily have the skills and they might need help to sort of to have someone come in and mediate or facilitate a conversation. I wouldn't even say mediate. I would say facilitate a conversation because miscommunication has happened to such an extent that people can't really communicate effectively in a way that's productive. If every time I hear you say, hey, let's talk, I think you're going to yell at me. I'm not going to be very open to that conversation. I'm not going to be in a place to listen and learn and engage when I think I'm just going to get yelled at. I'm in trouble. Everything's terrible. How can I hide? How can I avoid this situation? How can I placate you maybe? How can I suck up to you? Do I need to bring you donuts so that you don't want to talk to me anymore? What do I need to do? So people get in these weird cycles. And I think some of that's lack of skill on their part as an individual. I think I'd say that's poor management collectively because your manager or boss is letting you fend for yourself. And really you lose productivity, right? If your yes. teammates are just stressed about how to deal with each other, or every time they see a notification pop up from one person, they spend 10 minutes worrying that that person's gonna yell at them, like, oh no, they wanna meet with me tomorrow. Oh my gosh, what did I do? You know, they're they're not gonna have a productive, effective day. So it really destroys team effectiveness and productivity when these conflicts are simmering and happening. And I think a poor manager is someone who just lets people fend for themselves, because not everyone has those skills. Not everyone has the wherewithal. And sometimes you might need someone to come in and just facilitate this conversation because people have, like I said, got so entrenched and so confused about what the communication is that's even happening or what people want to have happen. So they need that support. I don't know when, like your original question was like, well, when do you go to a manager? Like anytime you need support, I mean, uh, theoretically, that's what your manager is there for. The reality is that's not the case for so many people, which is such a bummer for yeah. the organization and for the team, but also for that individual in the moment who's like, I'm adrift. I, I don't know what I need to do. Things are getting weird. How do I, they start to avoid, start to avoid, you know, the situation, the person, whatever. And productivity just tanks. Keeping your mouth shut. So somebody's giving you a hassle. <laughs> somebody's giving you trouble. They're face to face. You're in the office, you're in the environment, or you're just out in the main street. Is it best just to kind of don't react, walk away, um, mm. or is it just depending on the situation? I'd have to go with this depending on the situation a little bit. I think the world is a better place when we more easily recognize that people could use some help meeting their needs. If it takes me two minutes to do something that is, you know, we're just crossing each other in the street and you drop something and I can pick it up for you, great. It's not a big conflict. You know, you step on my toe, I don't care. You know, whatever it is. But I think the... Yeah, I think that sense of 
being there to be giving and offering of yourself to others is a great way to make the world better. I think there are other times, I think the opposite example is sort of this, how do I deal with trolls on the internet, right? Someone just yeah. shows up to be aggressive and be mean. I don't have a lot of time or space for people who that's, that's meeting a need of theirs. It has no bearing on me or my life. I don't know if you're familiar with Brene Brown, the um, author and researcher, but she talks a lot about how if people are giving you criticism, you have to sort of weigh whether that's someone whose criticism you even want, or if it value, if there's any value in that person giving you this criticism. You know, if someone's giving me advice on something that is, I don't, <laughs> basically I don't trust them, I don't know them, I'm like, I, I don't care about your advice a little bit. You know, your advice in quotes also knows your criticism or your, you know, negative sort of feedback a little bit. So I think there's a range to say whoever is offering this, where are they coming from? What, you know, why are they offering this, you know, maybe negative viewpoint, maybe whatever it is, and do they matter to me? And are they offering me something useful and helpful? There's sort of different layers to look at it. And sometimes, no, sometimes who they are isn't relevant to me specifically. What they're saying maybe has a grain of relevance to them, but isn't meaningful to me. I just can let that part go, which is hard. We still take it too seriously. We're like, wait, what are they saying? This is where it's, you know, a practice of letting go of some things that just might not matter. So pretty much uh, what they tell you is none of your business. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> so. yeah. Well, and on the flip side, sometimes something comes out of the blue and you're like, oh, that's super useful. That's super relevant. This is why we scroll through social media. We're like, oh, look at this super relevant, interesting thing that came from someone I don't even know. So <laughs> we're like, we're a handful of paradoxes as people, but like, oh, I want only really useful, relevant things. I'll take that from strangers. But this mean thing, no, you know, I don't know. We're a mess <laughs> that way. You're, you're the founder of uh, WSL Leadership. So can you let our listeners know a little bit more about your organization and what services you provide? Absolutely. WSL Leadership, uh, the WSL stands for Work, Sport and Life. And those are the areas where I focus on my leadership education. So I do webinars right now in the online world and I've done previously in-person workshops, helping people develop their leadership skills. And also I help teams function together better so they can be champions in whatever their work or sport world is. So I have leadership education broadly, I webinars, team development and masterminds. So I don't know if you're familiar with what a mastermind format is, but I bring together leaders from different organizations, industries, and help them support each other and grow and develop super rapidly in a mastermind format, which is a collective meeting format that meets over time. Cool. I mean, are these services, are they global? Yes, I have had some fun time zone scheduling happen to happen, but yeah, <laughs> they are, I have folks all around the world come into either workshops, masterclasses, or masterminds. Oh, pretty cool. And you have a cool podcast called The Books Applied Podcast. What can listeners expect from this? <laughs> they can expect <laughs> me <laughs> to talk about books I like, really, is the short story. It's a little, uh, you are very professional and have a very well-defined podcast. Mine's like, I like books. I like talking about them. <laughs> I want to have my friends on and talk about books. So I find useful, meaningful books and apply them how they could apply to your work or sport or life to make it better and often i have guests come on and we talk about i mean it's a whole range of topics of different things that i've read generally sometimes in sort of leadership ish or decision making or behavioral economics kind of personal development sort of tends that way a little bit but really it's about cool there's this book what are its ideas that can i can use how am i going to use them how is it going to make things better for me or for the people around me my team 
Pretty cool. And where else can the listeners get you on social media? Are you on the usual Facebooks and Instagrams? And yeah. where are you hanging out? I'm I'm not the most <laughs> consistent, but I would say Instagram. I, I dig Instagram and that copies over to Facebook. I'm there too. Uh, yeah, I think those are probably the best places to find me. LinkedIn, you know, because you, you got to be all professional. And those are, yeah, those are the main spaces I am. I'm not, I'm technically have a presence. Oh, Pinterest. I actually have a library of articles on Pinterest because every article you find has a picture. Pop that into Pinterest. Suddenly I have these, my boards on interest are topic area content from articles or things I've found in the world of the web. So I'm there. I think other places I might have an account, but I'm not very active. I'm on your website now, being nosy. Oh, uh, yeah, perfect. I just want to ask the free discovery call. What's that all mm. about? Oh, so I am, people have problems and they're messy <laughs> is the <Right>. short answer. <laughs> uh, as we've discussed, maybe a little bit on this podcast or things are confusing or they're not sure. And so folks can basically book a call with me and we can talk about what the challenges that you're facing. Sometimes it's with a team like, oh, my team culture is really toxic and ugh, people are hating it and we're having a hard time or it might be an individual i've had folks reach out to be like you know i'm really having trouble with my direct report right now i try to i want them to do this and they're doing that and we're having a communication breakdown or you know i help them sort of talk through that so and or folks are like tell me more about a mastermind i really want to i'm in, i'm intrigued i want to know more because i do a lot of the masterminds i host are very intentionally curated so i want to find the right people the right situation, the right investment, the right, you know, everything from the folks that want to be in one. So I do calls with all of them too, to make sure they're a perfect fit for the group that I have forming at any given time. So that's, those are sort of the basic things that happen in the discovery call. All I want to do now is just thank you to uh, Iggy Perello for chatting with me today on the Wellbeing and Career World podcast. I will place all the links, pretty much Facebook, all the social media, the link for the uh, Book Supplied podcast, and you can get in touch with Iggy Direct. So Iggy, you're an inspiration, a joy to chat with. Thanks so much for chatting with me today. It's been so awesome talking with you too, David. Thanks for having a great show. My pleasure. Thank you.